Hello, and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory, on the box, with Katie and Allie, normally just be Allie and I, hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about women in history, sometimes not as famous as they should be. <laughs> we have a very special guest here with us today, Allison Shaw. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so good to be with you tonight. Allison has worked as a professional writer for the last 30 years. Her writing on folklore and history has appeared in numerous journals and anthologies. She's currently living on the northeast coast of Scotland and is here with us tonight for her to talk about her upcoming book, Ashes and Stones, A Journey Through Scotland in Search of Women Hunted as Witches. This is a good one. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. um, I'm an American expat. and I currently live um, in the Northern Isles uh, in Orkney in Scotland, but I've been in the UK for about 20 years. And um, before I wrote this nonfiction book, I was primarily a poet um, uh, and a blogger. Um, and this is my first actually book length work. Um, so it's really interesting that in writing it, I had to become a historian very quickly, <laughs> a lay one, of course, in order to tell the story properly. But the book is also memoir. It's place writing memoir, travel log. Um, a- as well as a history of women who were accused of as of being witches and who were tried and executed throughout Scotland uh, during the 16th to 18th centuries. Yeah. Well, we're so excited to get into this book. I mean, it's just, the weather has just turned here. So we're very ready for anything witchy or spooky or (laughs) anything like that. Um, And the cover of the book, I have to just give this a shout out. It is so beautiful. I needed to tell you that it really... Inspired. This one or the yeah, yes, this, this one. one. Okay, great. You have oh, a so beautiful. I love it. So shout out to whoever designed that. <laughs> um, but before we even get into this beautiful book, we have to talk about the cocktail we made for it. So this is called Ashes and Stones, and it is Scotch because we're in Scotland, and this is really exciting because we never use Scotch. So <laughs> <laughs> it is Scotch, cranberry juice, lime juice, orange liqueur. And um, you top the whole thing off with ginger ale. So cheers. This is beautiful. Cheers. Color. <laughs> mm, I love that. Good. I wanted <laughs> to find some things like cranberry and ginger ale that kind of make us feel better when we're sick, but maybe don't, you know, a doctor might not prescribe it, but a witch might. <laughs> That's right. Something soothing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So before we dive into your book, we always like to set the scene for our listeners. As you said, we're in Scotland in the 16th, 17th century. Can you tell us what life is like for women at that time in Scotland? Yeah, I I think it was a time of deep unrest in that it was an occupied country um, undergoing a massive kind of governmental and spiritual overhaul in the form of the Reformation in that the old Catholic church was outlawed and there was a new godly society being built by King James where, and of course, John Knox, who was the architect of the reformation. And 
really woven in with that was a deep misogyny. So while at the time women worked together, uh, gave birth together, you know, made cloth together, gossiped in the marketplace, meaning not gossip in terms of what we would say, like bad-mouthing each other, but exchanging news, you know, debating beer prices, things like that. So there was a very communal life. And along with that was shared folklore, um, things about the fae or liminal spaces, plants um, and trees that perhaps had stories of the uncanny with them. Well, also holy wells, things like that. And all of that was kind of outlawed all at once, as well as like the visual information of the Catholic Church and things. So it was a real time of dissonant upheaval. And women were at the eye of this storm. Now, of course, there were 15% of the accused were were men. Um, and non-binary people, and, and while I'm sure they existed, that isn't part of the historical record. So while I'm talking in a binary, mm-hmm. I don't intend it um, per se. So, yeah, I think at the time, women were in transition from a medieval life to an early modern life. And they found themselves at the center of the storm, um, subject to a very modern application of the law in terms of witchcraft. I think we often see, you know, peasants with pitchforks, neighbors accusing each other. But really what this was, was a machine orchestrated from the central government um, to criminalize uh, shared folk belief. And women were scapegoated for that mm-hmm. and targeted. Yeah. As they typically are. Uh, <laughs> as we see. <laughs> so what kinds of women were accused of witchcraft? Did it have to do with class or whether they were married or just their life status? And what was the process like once it got started? Um, you know, was there kind of no going back or was there a chance to be recused of the witchcraft? Right. Um, well, it's you didn't have to be a particular kind of woman to be accused. (laughs) You just had to be in the wrong parish at the wrong time, perhaps living under the thumb of a witch hunting minister, someone who was a zealot or who was using witch hunting for political machinations to gain favor with the king, find a witch, look like a good Christian. And These women were not witches. And I think that there's a a kind of a modern fantasy or maybe an illusion that these women had secret knowledge or secret powers. They did not. Um, This modern idea of of witches imposed on them. They were Christians who were killed by other Christians. And that's the real tragedy of it. But um, what would happen is in the church courts, um, there would be recriminations there would be accusations either coming from men who the ministers themselves landed men or neighborly disputes that could not be under a different political circumstance may have been resolved in any other way but in the climate of the time you know which accusation was like a match to the tinder right so um, it's interesting. Um, there have been a lot of sco- scholars who have looked at like almost in a flowchart way of which accusation and there was very little escape routes. It was really a damnation, although 
I write about in the book, closer to the 18th century, we actually see women making arguments that like, hey, there is nobody fit to try me (laughs) or everyone who accused me is doing so because they're afraid they're going to die. So things that to us seem really obvious arguments were quite brave and just there were near the end, which in 1735, it became illegal to which to um, hunt witches. Mm. So the closer we get to that deadline, <laughs> um, we see that more and more women survive, but at what cost? They would have been interrogated and tortured by men they knew, and then were released back into their insular communities to live with that burden. So though they survived, it was at great cost. Mm. Yeah. You you already brought up the Fae a little bit earlier, and we're talking about witches. What other kinds of kind of other magical creatures were were people believing in or do people still believe in like were did witches have familiars at this point in Scotland yeah i mean um that's a really rich topic in that that was part of the shared folklore that was being kind of demonized in that before the witch hunts you saw that belief in the fae or in like where I live now in the Northern Isles, you see trolleys, which could be um, kind of a really not fairies in the Victorian way that we understand now with the little Tinkerbell, which you did a great episode on. Um, <laughs> but like, um, you know, little walking pieces of bark or something like just yeah. like really uncanny, weird beings, right? Um, and the trolley is like, is it a troll? Is it a little troll? Is it a fairy? Like, um, could be any number of things. So that in the Northern Isles, instead of fairies, you see trolleys. Um, and there's also, they could be the undead, right? Um, who in where I live, there's lots of mounds, hollow hills, which beings live inside of. Perhaps the undead ancestors, um, this is all blending, right? And so while our ancestors knew about these things and told stories that may or may not have been true, that liminal space of the sort of true, um, that was being wiped out during this time of uh, early modernity. Um, Yeah. And one of the other things that was mentioned in the book is the these witches' monuments. Um, and you kind of talked about how, like, the landscape is very much a part of this story, you know, yeah. Scotland's folklore history. Um, so what are these monuments? What kinds of monuments are they? And what, are they, what do they rep- represent? Well, it's fascinating in that I think... Once I scratched the surface, I realized this is a centuries, a generations long tradition of remembering this history that has been so erased that very few people in Scotland really know the scope of it, how many thousands of people died and how horrific their deaths were. Um, but there are these markers in the landscape and 
in order for me to really get access to the stories and histories, I had to look at the archaeological record uh, quite often because these stones were either they were quite old and then were accumulating stories, you know, like, oh, that's, um, you know, like Kate, this is Kate McNiffin's stone on the cover of the book, right? So, you know, the stones became, were given women's names. Um, and then in a modern tradition that has been adopted in places like Forfar, where a stone has been erected and then etched with, they were just people, right? Rather than, mm-hmm. um, so there is a modern tradition as well to erect a stone similar to what had been done in the past, um, in order to remember the dead. Yeah. Um, but there is an, also another tradition, kind of like the Troys and fairies, of a carlin stone. And a carlin is a name, uh, Scott's name for an old woman that could also mean a witch. And so these carlin stones are almost like sometimes they were women who were turned to stone. Um, or they're just kind of like proxy presences, right? Um and I became really obsessed. Like I lived actually down when I lived um, in a place called Banff, not Canadian Banff, <laughs> Scottish Banff, the OG um, Banff. But like the, I, li- it was just this rock in a field that actually had a little rock next to it, almost like a little baby. And but you know the farmer just like would store all the manure around it. I mean there was nothing. <laughs> special except that when i looked into the archaeological record i realized that was a carlin stone right it did have stories attached to it so yeah it was a fascinating journey um mapping these and visiting them all which is the story of the book yeah and scotland is referred to as a spellbound landscape did you find it to still have a magic feeling as you were doing all of this traveling yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, Scotland is my home. Um, and, but I am an immigrant, like an incomer <laughs> to this place, but it is, it has absolutely captured my heart and soul in that, um, there will be like, even where I live now, the way the light changes can almost cast kind of sort of rainbows, which in Scots, that's called a water gall. <laughs> so it's like a rainbow. It's not, but it's not. So you're not sure what you're looking at, right? Or the way the light is cast, um, the long golden hour in Orkney can often kind of give this illusory feeling that there are places that are made of gold. So, and everywhere around Scotland, you know, there are stone circles. I mean. Um, that aren't aren't as well known as the ones in England and yet they're they're everywhere here. <laughs> um it's a well kept secret, right? Um that Scotland is a very magical landscape. Of course we have Outlander that overlays a lot of and those things aren't true. <laughs> but <laughs> I think um if people imagine things enough, it it starts to take on a truth, even if it's not the truth. <laughs> now, I know this might be a difficult question to answer, um, but did you have a favorite woman in the book that you that really kind of um, 
interested you and you just like kept going back to kept thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely while I was writing the book, that person was Isabel Gowdy, which it's always Isabel. <laughs> Everyone who, you know, looks at this history because she left so, so many extensive confessions for us that were, she was a storyteller and the notar, the notary who was writing it down, got a lot of it down. So uh, that's like a gift to the future that she left. <laughs> but now that I live in Orkney, I keep thinking about Elspeth Rioch tried in Kirkwall, which is the town where I live now, in 1616, you know, the Piper's daughter, the wanderer from the Highlands, who was a teen mother, <laughs> um, and also a rape victim, um, who wasn't sure if her perpetrator was a fairy man or a human man. And these questions about traumatic memory that I'm probably anachronistically imposing on her still fascinate me. And every time I walk by the cathedral here in town, you know, when I'm just getting my groceries or something, I think about her in there being interrogated, you know, like I live right next to the site of her suffering. And I think about her mysteries and her very short life a lot. Yeah. When I think about the people who were executed for witchcraft and about your book, I, I always start to think about the responsibility that we hold for these women, you know, a lot now you can see online shirts that you can buy that are like, they were women, not witches. Or I know there's one um, that I just saw recently about um, Salem, Massachusetts, that says like 1692, you missed one, yeah. like things like that. <laughs> so what is our responsibility as modern day feminists to these women? Yeah. And I think that that is a question that I think about every day. And it was kind of the final gesture of the book. Um, I do identify as a witch, meaning like I find meaning in the wheel of the year, the phases of the moon. And yet I have a debt to clear their names because they were not witches. They were Christian women who prayed in a church, prayed for mercy and they didn't get it, <laughs> who were betrayed by this Christian church. And, um, I think that as feminists, there is an obligation, even if you don't consider yourself a feminist trickster in witch form or <laughs> whatever, right? Um, to actually examine not only the misogyny that drove this kind of spiritual overhaul of Scotland, but really dangerous relationships between church and state that we see happening today. It's a really a warning sign, right? Um, like for us um, to look at how um, even like Justice Alito, the Supreme Court justice used an argument from a witch hunter called Matthew Hale in his arguments to repeal Roe v. Wade. Now, this is a really uncomfortable for me, really, un really um, nightmarish um, mm -hmm. synchronicity because that happened while I was um, while the book was coming out in the world. Um, yeah. Um, scary times. And it's, mm -hmm. when I think about this book, sometimes it does make 
me sex. I'm like, I almost kind of wish they were just like some badass witches, but they just, they weren't. <laughs> it makes me sad for them. Like, I wish they felt like they had some sort of ethereal power, but ultimately they were just victims of the patriarchy and the, I don't know, it's really sad, but I would love to know, how did you find these women? Like, were you just naturally coming upon them or did you really go digging into like some church archives? Where did they come from? (laughs) Yeah. And I think just like to a quick, Mm -hmm. um, like add on to what you were saying, which was so great. I mean, I think that there is this longing to see them as, as exceptional superheroes with powers and, there's a lot of fiction that's doing that right now, but some of them were so brave. <laughs> they refused to name names or they, they named people who were already dead. They were crafty. They spoke truth to power, knowing it would damn them. So while they were not exceptional in any way, they, I found these glimmers of like, are you kidding me? Like how brave this woman has done this. Like it inspired me in a way of what they were capable of um, under extreme duress. But I found them through because I didn't have access to the primary sources, which, of course, are written on rag paper in Oak Gall Inc., um, held at the National Records Office. Um, I did have now and they're written in Scott's in secretary's hand, which. I had to learn quite quickly. My knowledge of secretary's hand isn't great, but I did have to learn Scots. And of course, old Scots, um, which is a different language than what we're speaking even in modern Scotland. So um, I found them in 19th century antiquarian um, journals who they diligently copied these out. Now, if there's errors and problems with doing it this way, but it's what I had, like um, uh, Pitcairn, uh, famous Charles in Scotland, um, and also, but just at the National um, Library. Uh, libraries were real help to me <laughs> because I'm not an academic, not part of um, university library. I had to use public libraries, and librarians were always there, like, "Oh, you need this really obscure tome? Here it is, you know. Oh, you can't find that? We'll get it." <laughs> Um, they helped me find things, records that had been digitized as well, which was really helpful. Um, so I was looking at the court records from church court records that had been tr- transcribed by 19th century historians um, in the original Scots. Mm-hmm. So the takeaway is that librarians are the people with magic. Yes. That's it. (laughs) Exactly. They are the magic, like my fairy godmothers. (laughs) They are. (laughs) So um, were there any mysteries? Were there women that you found their names or little pieces and there just wasn't enough about them, even though you searched and searched? That's right. That's right. Of the 4,000, I mean, sometimes it was overwhelming to be like, these are 4,000 cold cases. And any one of them is like, you know, and and that's just scratching the surface. That's that's a number that I'm not making up. There are amazing scholars who have done this diligent work. And yet lots of records were destroyed. Sometimes the names they were given were not their actual names or their names were not even recorded. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the only records we have of their lives were how much it costs to kill them, how much the peat costs or the, the 
men were hired to bring the peat in to burn them, how much the scaffolding costs to build, like things like that. Um, so we don't, even though things are still coming to light, this is this scholarship is finally kind of, I wouldn't say in vogue, but it's it used to not be taken seriously. Like, what are you writing about? What are you studying? Whereas now, I think it it actually is opening up, and people are like finding. In fact, Isabel Gowdy's confessions were found in a box hidden away <laughs> um, in the National Records Office. They had not been found, so um, Emma Wilby found them in a box and transcribe them. So things like that are being discovered. But it's true. Sometimes I would just hit, like, I would hit a blank wall like um, Janet Cornfoot and Pittenweem. Um, all I could find were, like, really um, grotesque caricatures of her in poetry and, you know, body poetry. Even though I, I know that she was lynched in the town. So I was... And then finally, I finally found um, a transcription at the National Library in a place that I did not expect to find it. I found like some of her last words, um, witness accounts that were written down. And so it made me think, oh, gosh, this is a life's work. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, if, whereas if I wouldn't have found that, these glimmers, like more breadcrumbs I would have been like okay that's it mm -hmm. but um because the harder you look there are and to piece together even a little bit of an authentic voice from that time was such a powerful thing to me like like wow they've waited 400 years to be heard by us <laughs> and like listen to this sentence she says you know like even that's that's all it is there's there's a humanizing moment there that is really powerful I think yeah well thank you for doing this research it sounds very painstaking and uh like it took a long time and could have gone on forever like you said but obviously the book has to come out at some point uh, <laughs> yeah and um do you have any advice for people who want to research women like this that you know again we only have glimmers of them do you have any advice something that you learned while writing this book yeah I think that um the survey of Scottish witchcraft which is a database that's online mm -hmm. um is a great place to begin in that um there um an intern called Emma Carroll made this amazing map where if you know if you're outside of Scotland and you know where your ancestors are from or if you're in Scotland and you live in a certain place, you can zero in on this map and find the people who were accused there, find their names, and then the record numbers, which then you can go look at an overview um, of their trial record, which is very brief, but that's a start, right? And then you can start to, to explore and see what else you can find. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the map is a great place to start because it gives you a touchstone in the landscape as well um and a list of names yeah awesome well can you tell our listeners where they can find your book 
where they can get it and read it because it's about to be October oh, for yeah. us. And well, we love that. And also where they can find your poetry. Yeah, because the book is coming out October 3rd. Yeah. So right Very now, soon. October. <laughs> That's right. October 3rd, um, Ashes and Stones. It's distributed by Simon & Schuster. So you should be able to get it at Barnes & Noble or all your great independent bookshops. Um, you know, Amazon, of course. Uh, if you're in the UK, the book is out in paperback right now. It's actually Waterstone's Scottish Book of the Month. Congratulations. <laughs> so you can get it at um, any of those bookstores and your independent bookshops. Um, yeah, and just I, I write online. Um, I have a sub stack. I have a website called alisonshaw.com. It's my name. And <laughs> um, it has links to, you know, my online sub stack where I post um, original poetry, fiction, or essays around this subject matter, um, as well as just professional updates. Um, so if people want to find out, and it's also got links to my social media uh, presences on there. So that's a really good place to go if you want to uh, find out more about me. Perfect. Well, thank you again. You know, this book, I think, you know, because you're a writer and not necessarily a professor or someone who's been a historian for 50 years, it's written in a very poetic manner, which I really loved. Like, you just kind of get swept away in the stories. So I hope that people go out and they read this book and they love it. Um, as much as we did. So thank you again for coming on and good luck with the release and everything. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy to be with you. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.